Hey everyone, welcome to the Loving This Life podcast hosted by yours truly, Abby Hillis, founder of ACH Events and Grow Group and also the co-founder of The 12th Woman, an advocacy group fighting for sexual assault survivors. You are currently listening to a special series called Advocating for Athletes. This four-episode series approaches emotional and physical abuse issues surrounding elite competitive athletes from multiple perspectives. Each episode includes one guest, their story and involvement in adolescent sports, and how they believe society as a whole needs to change and it needs to happen now. My goal is that our listeners are not only educated on the issues that athletes face, but also provide a platform for survivors and athletes to speak out. The louder we are together, the more we will change the culture and societal norms. If you would like to share your story anonymously or with your name, I have created a space to do this by going to lovingthislife.org. I also want to give a huge thank you to the Texas Advocacy Project. TAP provides advice over the phone, support with do-it-yourself legal filing processes, and complete client representation. Their experienced attorneys guide and advocate for you through the entire process, and the best part is that their services are always completely free for survivors. If you are picking up this series starting with one of the episodes, I invite you to listen to the introduction episode to this series. It is a quick 10-minute listen and provides an overview and additional details about this series. And as a reminder, these episodes contain very triggering content, so please take breaks as needed. Thank you to everyone who has supported the Loving This Life podcast and continues to do so. Let's dive in. Hi, and welcome to the Loving This Life podcast. I am not Abby. My name is Megan, and I have the honor of hosting Abby for this episode today. Yeah, super weird, right? I get to be a guest on my own podcast. I don't know. Is that even a thing? It is today. (laughs) It is today, and that's fun. (laughs) I think you had a couple of things you wanted to say at the beginning of this podcast, just to get everybody ready for what's coming. Yeah, and well, you should go go ahead and also share um, a little bit about yourself and who you are and why I asked you to host me. Okay. Um, Well, my name is Megan Ramir. I am a 2L. I guess I'm technically a 3L now since I just finished my second year of law school at the University of Texas. But most importantly, I am Abby's partner in crime, our um, advocacy organization called The 12th Woman. And yeah, that's those are the interesting bits about me. <laughs> and you're getting married this year, hopefully. That's the plan. Yeah, no, we will be getting married this year, come hell or high water. Um, <laughs> it may not be at a wedding, but we will be getting married. <laughs> yeah, so you guys, Megan's like, she's just, it's really crazy how the whole 12th woman thing happened. And we'll kind of get into that. But we ended up meeting each other and realizing we lived like five minutes away from each other in Round Rock which was really cool. And we just kind of tackled and took on 12th Woman together and still continue to do advocacy stuff together. Um, She does a lot of legal advocacy that is far over my head. Well, not far over my head, but a lot more over my head than hers. And I'm really excited to see what her career looks like in the legal world because I think she's going to make some changes for sure for like I just think about like the things that we're doing now and how they are going to be so awesome for our kids one day. So you guys, that's Megan. So she's going to host me, which is going to be hard because I talk a lot, but um, (laughs) I did want to start off by saying a few things. So I'm about to share my entire story from start to finish. And this is like the first part that's going to kick off this entire series that we're doing here on the Loving This Life podcast called Advocating for Athletes. And This story is unique to me. It's my experience. And I want to just share the facts that happened in my life 
I'm going to start from my beginning early ages of being a gymnast and then share my experience through that, through coaching gymnastics, because I've kind of been on both sides of the world when it comes to being a coach and a gymnast. And I've also worked alongside USA Gymnastics some. Um, so I kind of have a unique situation in that. And then I also am going to kind of transition to my assault and talk about that and kind of how Megan and I came about meeting each other. And then together, we're going to kind of share about the 12th woman and the work that we've done and that experience and how ultimately, I think for me, the theme has always been, I feel silenced when I'm in reference and talking to my, about my assault. And I don't really want to feel silenced anymore. And I want to be able to share my story the way that I want to share it and not have the media spin it in a way that isn't the way that I would have done it. So these are my stories and my experiences. And my goal from sharing these is that one less gymnast maybe stops hurting themselves or loves their body more. And maybe one more coach decides to love a gymnast more than to degrade them or um, emotionally or verbally abuse them. So that's really my goal. I really just want to, you know, make it this world a better place. We have choices each day. And I think knowing that we have choices, um, whether you're a coach, a gymnast, a parent, you're trying to make the best decisions each day that you have to. And I think sometimes some people don't make the best decisions and it's caused a lot of survivors to feel like they can't speak out. The media shared my story and their own voice. And it was not the story that I felt like was my story. You know, I've been silenced. I was told that I was raped because I asked for it. I was told that I was lying about my rape for attention. I was told not to speak out about my assault or any of my experiences as a gymnast because it would jeopardize my future. I have told I shouldn't put sexual assault advocate in my bio because it's inappropriate for six-year-olds. So being silenced is a real feeling as a survivor. And let's face it, I'm not good at being silenced. So this is my chance to just really speak up and attempt to make the world a better place. And I'll be damned if my child grows up in a time when sexual assault is taboo. So all of you guys listening, whether you're a gymnast or just an everyday listener of the Loving This Life podcast, or maybe this is just your first time listening, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm really excited to just share my own story and kind of lay it all out there. Megan's going to kind of help me because there's a lot of gymnastics jargon that a lot of non-gymnast people may not understand. And so I'm going to try to fill in and she's going to kind of give me a heads up anytime I might be talking about something that people don't understand. So I'm going to try to talk in layman's terms, but sometimes gymnastics can be its own <laughs> lingo. So um, I am not a gymnast, so we can all learn together. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's like its own, I don't know, it's just this weird little like group and group of people and lingo and yeah, own language. So why don't we start at the beginning of your time as a gymnast? Do you want to take me back to the very start? I started at Capitol, which is like the gym I grew up in when I was five. So my family lived in Plano and we relocated to Austin for my dad's job. And I was driving my parents nuts and flipping on everything in the house. And so my mom took me to Capitol. I was there from the time I was five till the time I was 15. It's the only gym I ever went to. I started at their show team level, which was like the way that they got us used to being in front of people and performing. And then at that point in time, I started 
at level five and then throughout my career went all the way through level 10, even though I never competed level 10. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, there are 10 levels in the JO program of gymnastics. And back when I was a gymnast, levels one through six were compulsories, which is where everyone does the same routine. And then seven through 10 were optionals, which is where you did your own skills and your own routines and you put them together. Well, your coaches helped you. But now levels one through five are compulsories and six through 10 are optionals. So that's important for kind of later on for you guys to understand. But um, I started on show team. I had an incredible show team gymnastics coach. Her name was Trisha. She had us do some super fun dances. Um, we performed all over the Austin area. I had a great experience. It was awesome. Then I started my compulsory career and um, I had some awesome coaches then, but every now and then I would get coached by a higher level coach. Some of them were really great experiences and some of them were really awful experiences. When I first started my optional career at level seven, I had Amanda and Mark. And to this day, I'll never forget the two of them. They were a dream and a force to be reckoned with. Amanda has her own gym now in San Antonio with her husband and three kids and they do very well. And Amanda always made sure to make me feel loved and supported, as did Mark. We have some funny stories of Mark getting a little frustrated with us and our hormones, but at the end of the day, we knew he loved us and cared for us and definitely wanted us to see us succeed. He's no longer in the gymnastics world, but we stay in touch on a regular basis. But ultimately, you know, I think it's important to point out I had good coaches and I had not so good coaches. And I also want to point out that every gymnast experience with a coach is different. So just like in a corporate world setting where you have coworkers that you get along with and coworkers you don't get along with, there are also going to be coaches and gymnasts that bond and respect each other. And then coaches and gymnasts that have struggle kind of like leveling and seeing eye to eye. I experienced a lot of the not seeing eye to eye. And there's no doubt in my mind for a second that I was a tough kid to coach. I still, like today, I'm speaking my mind. I'm speaking my truth. I always spoke out. I always chatted with the other gymnast. I wanted to be friends with everyone. I questioned everything because that's just my personality. So I can imagine being my coach was, was not exactly the easiest, but I was also a sweet kid. It's not like I was an asshole. At the end of the day, I can look back and I know that. I may have talked too much and I may have you know pushed their buttons a little bit, but it wasn't because I was an awful kid. I was just being intuitive and questioning. And it was all things that now I would want my kid to do. One really vivid memory I had, like kind of before I really got into my intense optional career was a coach that went by the name Steve Bork. Funny story. After being a coach at Capital Gymnastics, he was actually on the news for a high-speed chase down 35 with a gun hanging out the window. Come to find out once the cops finally got him, it was an airsoft gun and not a real pistol. But they didn't know it because all they saw was a gun hanging out the window at the time. So this is the guy that was coaching us at one point. And this is also the same guy who told me I would never be an athlete, told me I would never make it anywhere, that I needed to shut up a lot of the time. At one point, we were at a competition for TOPS training, which TOPS training was for younger girls to get really strong and basically compete on strength. Kind of think of it as CrossFit in a way, but much more regimented, um, strength and flexibility. And we went to a TOPS like, performance training camp. I don't really even know what it was called. 
And he was my coach and he actually left me out on the floor alone because he was disappointed in my performance. I just remember feeling like I was always a failure with him. Like I could never do anything correct. How old were you when all this was happening? Like when did you start optionals? When did you work with Steve Burke? What ages was this? So I would have been probably like six or seven when I started level five and I did five for two years. So by the time I hit optionals and I was a level seven, I mean, maybe I was 12, 13, maybe 11, 12, 13, somewhere around there. I'd have to go back. My mom would probably know those exact answers. But I mean, at this point, like, especially with gymnasts, I hadn't hit puberty in the slightest. So as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I was working out all the time. I was never home. I wasn't going to school full time. So gymnastics was my life. I was sheltered. I we, we joke kind of in the gymnastics world and there's an, and in one of the later episodes of this series, you'll hear gymnasts talk about it, but we just were very delayed in not only like social growth, but mental and physical growth as well, because we were so in the gym all the time that like, so you even hear a, gy- a gymnast being 13 where you can probably equate that to like a normal everyday teenager being like 10 or 11. That's kind of how far behind we are typically with like really, um, if you are a really intense athlete in the sport. And that's a lot, that's probably similar for a lot of really intense athletes. But one really specific instance I'll remember, I remember about working with Steve was that he was making me do this skill where you, so the women do um, uneven bars and there's a high bar and a low bar and you go back and forth between them. And the more, the higher level you get, the more transitions you have to do between the bars. So this was the, at the beginning of me learning this transition for the first time of going from the high bar to the low bar. And there's a couple different skills that can get you from the high bar to the low bar. This one was called a counter. People don't even do them anymore because they're not exactly safe. Typically, when you're learning a counter, you put a bunch of mats over the low bar and a mats underneath the high bar and you're really protected because that's just you know the safety way to start learning it. Well, I had done that a few times. And then one day, Steve just decided he was going to make us all do it with the bars completely bare all the way out. You're just going to let go and have to go for it. Get over it. Right. And I was stuck on bars for three hours. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't let go of the high bar because it didn't make sense for me to let go of a high bar and shoot for the low bar when I knew I wasn't prepared as a gymnast to do it. And he told me I was stuck on this event until I finished it and I completed it. I was a stubborn and still am a very stubborn person. And when I felt like you were jeopardizing my safety, I wasn't going to do it. Finally, I decide I am so sick of doing it. I'm just going to let go. I end up letting go, landing and sitting on top of the low bar and flipping over and landing on my head. And at that point, I think he pretty much realized like to not mess with me because I was just going to prove him wrong in any situation. And it wasn't like I purposefully made myself land on my head. I knew I wasn't ready. I knew I wasn't ready to do the skill. Steve left and came back to Capitol a second time. And it was after that second time that the whole high speed chase thing happened. And, you know, I think this was a case of, to be completely honest, I don't know what it was a case of. There are a lot of coaches at Capitol that I questioned why they were allowed to be employed there. And I don't know if it was a relationship with the owners that he had that kept him there. I'm not really quite sure, but he's definitely one that when I look back, I don't really think I have any fond memory of him. But after Steve, I was also coached by a coach named Courtney. And she is someone who, again, I always want to try to make sure that I'm including the positive with the negative memories. And Courtney, to this day, uh, has a huge impact on who I am, especially as a teenager. 
she loved on us. She asked us about boys. She asked us about life. She wanted to paint nails with us. Like she embraced the girl and normalcy of being a gymnast and didn't make us feel like we were robots. For that, I'm forever, ever grateful for her. Um, She was a phenomenal coach. I think she had her own personal struggles that she went through um, in the midst of when I was being coached by her that I think ultimately made her leave the gym. And something that people don't know about in the sport of gymnastics, especially the female side, there's four events. And vault and bars, like in society norm, is coached by a male coach. So typically your male coach coaches vault and bars, and then a female coach coaches beam and floor. And then that male coach also will help you with your tumbling on floor. Why are the events so gendered that way? You know, that's a great question. And I don't even know the answer. So I know on bars is heavy spotting. And so it definitely makes sense to have anyone who is physically inept enough to, we're, you know, flipping, letting go of the bar and re-grabbing the bar and things like that. And so you have to have someone who's strong enough to really spot through that. It's heavy when you're learning skills on it. It's some putting mats in, but a lot of times it's also heavy spotting. So I think naturally more male coaches are bigger and more equipped to do that. Now there are coaches who coach all four events or females who coach vault and bars, but that's like the stereotype is you have a male and female coach. One does vault and bars, the other does beam and floor. And that's just how it is. And growing up, that's how it was for me. And so while I had Courtney, I also had coach Barry. If you guys know anything about capital gymnastics, you guys know who coach Barry is. Um, he has been around from the beginning He's very good friends with the owners, Jim and Cheryl Jarrett. And he just recently left Capitol. And he has coached hundreds of gymnasts through the doors of Capitol. And in my opinion, hasn't always left the best lasting impact on those gymnasts. I think there are gymnasts in this world who had a very positive experience from his coaching style because their personalities meshed better. But I think there are a lot more gymnasts who struggled with his coaching style. After Coach Courtney um, had to leave, I think for more personal reasons than anything, she was replaced by this coach named Chris. And one thing that I want to share on this podcast is that I think a lot of coaches that are male are getting a lot of bad rap in the sport of gymnastics because a lot of the coaches who are found responsible at the national level have been male. Um, but Maggie Haney just came out and she's now, you know, withdrawn from USA Gymnastics for eight years. And she was a female. And some of the worst have been females. And we talk about that in episode two with another coach. And we talk about how it's not just males treating gymnasts like this, the females are doing it as well. And for me, that was Chris. When I look back at my gymnastics career, Barry and Chris are the two that stick out like sore thumbs. And when I mean sore thumbs, this is a thumb that's infected that probably needs to be chopped off. It's not good. A couple examples of things that I experienced when being coached by them. uh, I was at a competition. I was an optional gymnast at this point doing fairly, you know, bigger skills on each event. I was on beam and I had a really bad warm up. I fell on everything. My mind was all over the place. And Side note for non-gymnast people, if you have a bad warm-up on beam, the chances of you having a really good competition are actually higher. At least that's what I believe because you get all your falls out during warm-up. So yes, it can be stressful to fall during warm-up, but sometimes it can also be like the best thing that can happen because then you go and rock your competition routine. So for me, it was like, okay, yeah, I fell on everything, but like that doesn't mean I'm not ready to compete. Well, 
she seemed to be disappointed in it. It was at either a state, regional, or national meet. And she walked out on me. And I had another coach that was in my squad step in and was my beam coach for my routine when I competed because she just straight up was disappointed in how I competed and walked out. Now, I was there with one other gymnast and me and that my parents and that gymnast parents paid for that coach to be there. We were paying for her to be there and she still chose to walk out and not coach me. That's just one example. I at one point was weighed multiple times by her. I had gained a pound and was told that I was fat and I had gained too much weight. Also, this is starting of the process of me going through puberty. I was probably getting into age 13, 14 at this point with her. And so, I mean, you could... I just remember my body, like one day I felt skinny and the next thing I felt like an elephant when you're going through puberty and you're growing and you're not growing. And so you go bigger, you go out wider and then you grow up and then you, you go an inch or two and then you get, feel skinny again. And so it was a constant struggle as it was anyway. And let me just also point out, we didn't eat fast food in my family. I was only allowed to eat nutritious food. My mother made sure of that. Every snack and meal I ate had nutritional value. Like my one thing that I always remember getting on the way to Saturday morning workouts was I got to stop at McDonald's and get a bacon, egg and cheese biscuit. Besides that, like I did not eat unhealthy. So there was just no way. And working out 30 hours a week, 25, 30 hours a week, there's just no way I was ever going to be fat. Like that's just such such an awful thing to say to a teenager. So I, she still to this day is a large reason why I have body shaming issues for myself. At one point, she was asking me to do a skill on a low beam. I have a really bad back and I have this disorder called spina bifida scoliosis and my last vertebrae is not closed. So I'm not near as flexible as a normal gymnast person. And I was doing a skill that required a lot of flexibility and I couldn't successfully complete it on the low beam, which just in any situation in gymnastics, when you're learning a new skill, there's always like progressions to get you to where you need to be. For beam, it's you try it on the line and on the floor, and then you move it to a low beam with mats, and then you take the mats away, and then you slowly move to a higher, 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 higher beam till you get it all the way up. I couldn't do it on the low beam. And then she required me to get on the high beam and do it. And I looked at her and I said, I can't do this on the low beam. It doesn't make sense for you to make me do this on the high beam. Why, again, would I jeopardize my safety out of a request that a coach is making? And so I refused to do it because at this point I was getting older and having a voice, she basically kicked me off beam and because I refused to do it. And I went by her and I said, well, you weren't even coaching me anyway, so it's not that big of a deal. And I walked away. Well, that comment got me kicked out of the gym for a week. I had to apologize to her. And never once did she ever have to apologize for me for putting my, my body in jeopardy, for putting me in a place where I was extremely fearful And I've learned now through a lot of therapy that those rejections of expressing fear and concern and it being completely not validated by an adult is actually super like detrimental to the growth of a child and its ability to trust people. And then my last biggest like glaring memory of her was my career ending ankle injury. So I, it was a Friday night. It was at this point I I was... 15 years old, I was into football and being social. And I, (laughs) I told her I was done with my workout. 
And if there's one thing you knew about me as a gymnast is I didn't cheat my numbers. I loved conditioning. I loved working out. I love to just get my workout done. And I always felt it looked uh, for others to get their workout done than it did for me. And so I had finished and she didn't believe me that I'd finished my numbers. And she asked me to do one more last tumbling pass. So I did. And when I punched from one flip to the next, I punched on the side of my feet, like basically on my ankle bone on both feet and flipped over and a front flip and landed on my back. I started screaming for obvious reasons and had to look down to make sure that both my ankles were still attached to my legs because at that point it felt like they were dangling. She, I'm screaming and she runs over and puts her hands on my shoulder. And the first thing she said to me is, you need to calm down. You're overreacting. That injury stopped me from being able to go to college as a college gymnast. One more, one more, um, it's hard to even talk about. I'm getting emotional. One more pass and her belief of not believing me is what caused me to not be able to go to college for gymnastics, which was a dream of mine. So still to this day, I don't know that she knows that, which is really frustrating, but... I'm really sorry, <laughs> No, it's cool. I mean, it's... Talk over each other here, and so I'm trying not to butt in, but like, I'm really sorry. That's awful, and she shouldn't have done that. It just sucks because I don't think like... As a coach, I don't think that people really understood what they were doing to us gymnasts at the time. I think now that there's so much more outspoken about like the implications of treating a kid that way and how it can like negatively affect their like growth as a human. I think that now it's going to change a lot of things. But at the time, you know, I just don't think she was even aware of what she was doing and who knows what she was going through personally. I think there was a lot of personal stuff going on at that time in her own life. But at the end of the day, like that can't be projected onto a child. So at the same time that I was getting treated like this by my female coach, my male coach was Barry. And I mean, anyone who knows Barry knows he's inappropriate. Anyone who knows him. Uh, To this day, my father still won't even look at him or talk to him and has thought he was inappropriate and not welcome in our home um, from day one. He just got a vibe from him that he didn't like. And you can talk to my father today and he'll tell you openly that he's felt this way. Uh, there's examples that I could tell you and I could, I've talked to my teammates about this, that I grew up with going to the gym about just the inappropriateness that we experienced while God knows what Chris was going through. Barry was going through a divorce. He has seven kids and his wife decided to leave him and have a little bit of a midlife crisis. And I believe started, um, professional dancing and, you know, just kind of doing some really not good things with her life. And at one point, he had clothes in the trunk of his car for some reason that were hers and asked us to have a fashion show and try on these clothes that were hers that were incredibly inappropriate to be putting on by professional dancer. I mean like nighttime person, not, not like, um, like a sports professional dancer. And you know, that was inappropriate. We knew insane details about his divorce and the things that his ex-wife was doing that we should have never known about. I mean, at that point I was 13 years old. There's just no need to know details about what your ex-wife's doing with her boyfriend and how he's, she's treating your kids. And that alone, like that memory is just weird in itself because I would never have shared those details as a coach to any of my gymnasts if I was going through that. There were times when he would stretch us and just touch us and really push on us and make faces. And it was weird and very uncomfortable. I know there was a few girls that he just, he would talk about how he loved to stretch them. And it was just weird. Like, it's just weird. It's not normal. There are a lot of times where he just completely degraded us. He told us that we weren't going to be successful, that we were a waste of his time. 
there was a lot of emotional, like degrading abuse going on. At one point, a teammate of mine won with her vault at a national meet or maybe got second place. It was like first or second place. And after she vaulted, he said, buddy, that was a piece of shit vault. And she ended up going on to win or get second place with it. And it was not a piece of shit vault in the slightest. But that's just what he did. When you didn't do what he wanted you to do, he just talked shit about you. And he just made you feel like you were scum on the bottom of your shoe. Even as like, and I'll get into this a little bit more, but I started coaching at Capital after I got injured. And even to the most recent couple years ago, I've watched him just laugh uncontrollably at gymnasts who would fall and get hurt. And instead of giving them corrections to improve their skills and not fall anymore, he would just laugh at them and not even coach them or say anything. And then he got to a point where he was just not even spotting anymore. And so it was just not, just not a safe, comfortable place to be. One of the biggest memories of inappropriateness that I have with him is that he would ask us to bounce up and down on the trampoline so he could watch our boobs bounce, which is funny because as gymnasts, we had no boobs except for a few of us. I think he was joking, but that's just not a joking matter. And I would never say that ever to a child. That's completely, so, completely inappropriate. Yeah. I mean, it's just that like, and I, I, like, it's hard to provide concrete examples now, you know, so many years later, but there, I mean, if you got a group of my teammates together and we just did a round table, like pop off of like everything that we've ever heard come out of his mouth that was inappropriate. I mean, we would go on for hours. It was, it was not good. And what's sad is even like right now, um, there's like a Facebook feed where a bunch of us are talking about Maggie Haney, the, um, elite coach who's now being withheld from USA Gymnastics for eight years, all of my teammates are commenting on it, talking about how their experience of gymnastics was that they always felt like they weren't good enough and that the coaches never provided emotional stability. And they actually made us feel like we were, you know, not worth ourselves. And I know a lot of gymnasts that I went, that I practiced with, some are still fighting like eating disorders. Some struggle day in and day out with anxiety and depression and have got to go in and out of like places that help with that. I just don't know that the coaches that, you know, have been in any sport, it's not even just gymnastics that are, that are coaching these children. They don't understand how much, because we're spending so much time there. That's like the biggest thing. It's not like we're there one to two hours a week. It is 25, 30 hours a week that we're spent with these people making us feel like crap. And it has problems. It causes problems as adults. It's kind of like a second set of parents, right? I mean, you spend so much time with these people and you look up to them and that it impacts you in the way that parents would. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, we, I just did an episode with the couch therapy and we talked about how when we express a fear as a child or a concern or an emotion and we don't get the feedback that we need, it causes us to like immediately set up boundaries and start shutting down. And they explained kind of all of that and how that works. And I realized a lot of my like boundaries and issues that I have don't necessarily come completely from my parents. I thought that was a lot of the problem, but actually a lot of the problem came from the coaches that the bad coaches that I had as a gymnast. I think a lot of people, including Capital Gymnastics, don't want to hear that because then that puts responsibility on them. You know, could they have done better hiring their coaches? Absolutely. But I think more than anything, what they could have done is been better about asking gymnasts about their experiences in, the, in real time. And that's what didn't happen. Hey, guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the episode to bring you a little bit more information about our sponsor, Texas Advocacy Project. 
TAP provides solutions to lead those experiencing domestic violence or sexual assault to safety and free legal services. Callers to the legal line are offered free legal checkups, and this is often the first time they've ever spoken with an attorney to learn what rights they have. Civil legal remedies like protective orders and termination of an abuser's parental rights often provide the first steps to living in hope and leaving fear behind. Last year alone, TAP served over 10,000 clients and children across the state. I personally wish I would have known about TAP and all that they do to help survivors because oftentimes legal resources are what survivors need in order to understand their rights and how to move forward with pressing charges and reporting. I love what they stand for and I can tell you this is a group of amazing people. I recently went to their office for a meeting and I was welcomed with the most amazing energy and enthusiasm. These people are passionate and absolutely love what they do. Together we can and will be better. So if you would like to donate to TAP on behalf of a survivor or for a great cause, please visit texasadvocacyproject.org slash lovingthislife to make a contribution and to learn more about TAP. Now back to the podcast. After I had my injury and I was in a wheelchair for a month and a half, I then had, had to pretty much learn how to walk again in water therapy in a, where I wasn't basically weighing what I normally weigh on land because that was like the easiest way to learn how to walk again. I was basically told I needed to have double reconstructive ankle surgery or I needed to quit the sport. And by that point, I was at a place in my life where if I would have had the surgery and with recovery, I wouldn't have been able to go on and compete for a collegiate gym anyway, or team anyway. So at that point, I was just kind of like, I think this is God's way of asking me to retire. And I just made the decision to no longer be a gymnast. And then I switched over to coaching because I, my mentor, who's the owner of Capital Gymnastics, um, Cheryl had told my mom, you know, it would be really smart of you to keep her in the sport. She needs to be, you know, be active and she needs to have things to do and she needs to not just go be a normal child because I think they knew that if I experienced just like everyday normalcy of like a teenager, I probably would have gone real crazy. So I think like that was like their way of being like, okay, we're going to keep you responsible by having to be in the gym every day still, but you're going to be coaching. And so I started coaching. I coached all the way up through high school, finishing high school, all the way through college, came home and coached at Capital in the summers. And then after I graduated in 2011, oh my God, I can't even remember my graduation year. I came back and started coaching as an optional coach. So this was level seven that I started coaching. At that point, I was then working alongside Barry, who used to be my coach and my, my partner, which going back to kind of like, we always have a male, female combo. My partner was a coach named Paul Miller. And I think one point I wanted to be able to like express where I like the tables had kind of turned was as a coach. Now Barry saw me as like a peer, I think, and less of like a gymnast. And he would just make incredibly inappropriate jokes to me. He would talk about how hot other coaches were. Um, he made comments to me about athletes' bodies. At one point, a new coach came to Capitol and he whispered to me, you watch, I'm going to make her my girlfriend and come to find out they're now married. So just like, yeah, just very much objectifying women. And I started seeing more the adult side of his comments and conversations. And here's the thing, guys, like if you talk to any coach that had to ever be at a meet with Barry, they would tell you he's inappropriate. Like it's no secret that he's inappropriate. Yet somehow he's been allowed to do it. That's bananas. That's like, true bananas. It is. It's crazy. It's crazy that like, it's not unknown. 
Everyone knows he's inappropriate. Even kids who sing his praises, who are coached underneath him, know he's inappropriate. It's just wild to me that like parents are paying this man to like be around their children. Not only are parents paying, but a facility is paying them as well. Yeah. Yeah. So my next kind of situation of being like exposed to just this emotional and just a mental abuse that gymnasts go through was my co-coach, Paul. So him and I did not get along. I did not appreciate the way that he carried himself and the way that he treated the athletes. He also had athletes numbers and would text them and hang out with them in swimsuits on the weekend and go paddle boarding on Lake Austin and swim at their house. And the parents allowed it because I think the parents became friends with him because they were like similar in age, but either way, like it was taught in the sport of gymnastics to not have relationships with your kids outside of the sport. And even on like our annual pool party, it was like very much so like we weren't going to get in the water and play with the kids because it was just, there's too many like situations you could get yourself into. Paul didn't care about that. He just did whatever the hell Paul wanted to do. I want to provide an example of something like how he treated the girls because he would, he just would beat them down and he thought they were robots. He came from a military background and he legit thought that these eight, nine, 10 year olds were robots and that they should just do whatever he tells them to do. And I just so disagreed with that because I just saw a little me in them and I just didn't want to treat them that way. And so we all have routines on each event, right? And for level sevens, most it's your first chance in being optionals world at the time it was. And so your routines, they were hard, but they were very simple. Um, but they lasted about a minute. And he would make the girls do 20 to 25 bar routines and a 45 minute bar workout, which, and to someone like Megan or anyone listening who doesn't have a gymnastics background, that is, it sounds like it's not that bad. But if I put it to you this way, I think that maybe you'll get a better understanding of what he was requiring these seven, eight, nine, 10 year olds to do. Um, imagine you are nine years old. You have to run up and down to the stop sign on your street and back. And for however long that is, that entire run takes you about a minute to get there and back to the stop sign and back. So you have 45 minutes to run to the stop sign and back 25 times, but each one takes a minute. So in theory, you have to basically get all of these 25 minute or 25 runs done within two minutes of, for each run. And so that gives you a few seconds to catch your breath before you have to go again. So that's pretty much what it was like, right? Like you would take a turn, you would do your routine, you'd go to the chalk bucket, you'd chalk up and then you'd go again. But you can think of in between each one of your sprints or runs as you having to take off your shoes, put them back on and tie them back up while you're trying to catch your breath to go again. Because that's about equivalent to us, quote, chalking up in the chalk bucket, which is us like preparing our grips for our next turn. And so you're having to do this while catching your breath and then having to do whatever side stations the coach was making you do. And it's just not sustainable where every day you come to bars and you're asked to do that. Like imagine every single day being asked to run 25 runs in 45 minutes. Like it's just not sustainable. Now, if he had come to me and said, Hey, I want to try this thing. I want to see if they can get 25 routines, one workout done. And it was randomly out of the blue. And it was one time I probably would have been on board with that, but to do 25 routines day in and day out, you're destroying their hands. You're destroying their muscles. You're destroying their egos and their bodies. Everything about it just doesn't make sense. And any coach will tell you that's excessive. Every coach would. That Well, any coach that has their head on straight. So that's what these kids were subjected to. 
and they'd come to me for beam and floor, bawling, literally have no energy left. I'd never be able to accomplish anything with them. And what's crazy is these kids went on to win state championship as a team. Like these kids were insanely talented and he just beat them down. And at one point I finally had to look at the owners of capital and say, it's either me or him. Like I can't sit here and coach along this guy who's verbally yelling at them and abusing them, emotionally abusing them. And they kept defending him. The owners did. And I finally got to a point where I was like, you either have to kick me out and I'm no longer a coach here if you keep him or you need to kick him out. But this isn't going to work anymore the way that he's treating these athletes. Let's just say he went to about seven other gyms and gym hopped before he finally, I think, had settled, I think now. But he's just someone that had his own way of coaching and refused to listen to a more humane, correct, humane way. That's a good word a more correct way of coaching. So I share all of that to just kind of like basically shed light on my experience as a gymnast and as a coach. From then I went on to also work for USA Gymnastics and I was someone who helped run their regional and national congresses. I helped choreograph the compulsory routines that the lower levels did. I did it as a gymnast and was a demonstrator. And then I helped as an adult with the demonstrators I was heavily involved with USA Gymnastics. I worked their VIP rooms at championships. What is a VIP room? What does that mean? So um, anytime there were like these big conventions of educational conventions for coaches in gymnastics, there was also a competition with the elites. So you would like educate by day as a coach and then you'd go to these competitions and watch by night. And this was also like, for instance, the year of the Olympics, it would be an Olympic trial competition. And it's deciding who's going to go represent USA in the Olympics. We would have VIP rooms, which is basically where all the past Olympians and their parents and any of the sponsors, like, you know, Visa used to be a huge USA Gymnastics sponsor and Procter and & Gamble. And all. it would basically be that it was, our, it was the corporate way of whining and dining people, right? Making them feel special. So I was working it. I, you know, did that. I also traveled alongside a lot of top coaches doing the compulsory stuff because they're the ones that, you know, created it. So you've heard stuff about John Getter, met him, worked alongside him, Dan Baker, Tom Cole, and then my mentor and owner of Capital, Cheryl Jarrett. And these are people that like still to this day are, they're, they're big names in the gymnastics world. And I was around them all the time. And I learned very quickly that there was a very strong corporate America side of USA Gymnastics that I didn't really know existed, but I didn't quite understand the depth of it, but I kind of sensed it. And now knowing everything about the Nasser situation and everything that's come out, it all makes sense to me now of like the things that I witnessed and overheard and conversations and, you know, just Steve Penny talking to people and acting like he owned athletes that were basically paying his paycheck. And Steve Penny, for those of you who don't know, is that was was the president of USA Gymnastics when all of the Nasser stuff happened. And he, let's just say he went into hiding before they finally indicted him. He was trying to hide from the feds. It, his, the rest of his life is doomed from his choice of quieting gymnasts so, and protecting Nasser and any other of the coaches that have treated gymnasts wrong. So I just overall have just this really unique unique experience because the owners of Capital are also heavily involved with USA Gymnastics and they gave me these amazing experiences. So not only do I have these like individual gymnastics experiences as a gymnast but and as a coach but also at the you know top corporate level of USA Gymnastics and I just realized that a lot of the stuff that I idolized and the people that I idolize now are not 
who I thought they were. And that's really hard. Never meet your heroes. Yeah, exactly. And so to try to kind of transition from like my gymnastics background into kind of 12th woman stuff, I want to kind of set the scene for the year 2018 because that was a huge pivotal time in my life. 2018 is when I gave birth to my child and I gave birth to a very colicky child. So um, right in January after giving birth and into February, um, I was at home a lot on maternity leave from managing a capital gymnastics. And that was the same time that Nasser had to listen to the victims tell all of their stories and like basically confront him at his sentencing hearing, which went on for nine days. So I'm at home with this newborn and I'm watching the sentencing hearing where there's all these Olympians basically exposing what they were subjected to as a gymnast. And so that's happening. I realize that all of these people I idolize, like Steve Penny, Tom Cole, Cheryl Jarrett, Kathy Kelly, the board members of USA Gymnastics, I knew a lot of these people. The list goes on, and I realized that they were a part of the problem. And I thought they hung the moon. And as I watched this all unfold, I realized there was a really big problem going on that I that I didn't even realize. And so while the Nasser thing's unfolding... I am basically at home with this helpless newborn baby who's crying his way through life. I'm working at a gym that I'm learning. I don't really feel welcome at. I'm frustrated with them and how they're handling certain things. Um, At this point, I was also hearing about... like, So this was... Okay, this was 2018. This was only two years ago. But I'm witnessing coaches still in the gym at Capital Gymnastics ripping girls' hands off their bars and making them do skills they don't want to do while they scream like out loud and cry that they don't want to do it. Well, when a child says no, you don't make them do something. You have to respect the word no. Because what does that teach them? When they get older, the word no means nothing. And so I'm watching this do it and I'm bringing it to their attention. And they're basically telling me to just get over it and shut up and they're going to handle it. And so all of this is going on. And then five months after becoming a mom, I find out that I'm not the only survivor who was re-victimized by Texas A&M and not the only survivor who had my Title IX case mishandled. So here we are now in June of 2018, and I watched USA Gymnastics unfold and fall to pieces, and all these gymnasts come out and share their brokenness. I find a group of girls and women who we figure out we have a lot of similarities together of how our cases were handled or not handled at A&M. I look back at it 2018 and I'm just like, holy cow, that entire year is a blur. And so much happened. And, you know, at the end of 2018, there was a survivor who came forward who was publicly shamed because she came forward 30 years after her assault with Judge Kavanaugh. That happened in September. So that was another triggering moment. And that was very political. And I was reprimanded for supporting her regardless of my political stance because I was just supporting another survivor. I was processing my assault because I never dealt with my assault. So as I'm learning all of the stuff with the 12th woman, I'm realizing I never dealt with my assault. So I'm processing all of that and I'm trying to be a wife. And oh, by the way, it was the first year I took my business full time. So 28 to 18 to me was just this big blur and I used to regret it. And I wish I would have like handled the first year of my child's birth and life better. But then I realized that 2018 was such a pivotal time for me in my life that I'm no longer sorry or regretful of that year, that I've realized it's set me up to be able to be 
able to stand up to people and have a voice and not just be told to just hush and, you know, don't, don't bring up the bad because it's just going to ruin you. Well, I guess what bringing up the bads only brought really great things to my life. So, um, and I have a lot to, to thank to 2018. So kind of switching gears a little bit and diving into my, my involvement with the 12th woman kind of starts with my assault. And a lot of people ask questions about it. And there are just a few facts I want to share about it. I think a lot of people think that assaults won't happen to them. I was one of them. And to let you guys know about how invasive my assault was, I wanted you guys to know that I, it was in my own bedroom, in my own house that I lived in in college and a place where I thought I would never, ever, ever be disrespected. I was found with no clothes on, crying and unable to talk. I woke up the next morning not being able to sit. I was in so much pain. And from that point, I was, I had an amazing advocate that day who made me go to the police department. It was the first place we went. And I reported it to the college station police department who then sent me to the hospital. And I had a rape kit done where that nurse was so confident by the findings that she collected that she would see me in court because she hadn't done a kit that had that much evidence in years. To this day, the city has little to no record of my assault and report. I asked for my medical records from the hospital and I got a piece of paper with the nurse's name and one paragraph talking about how I claimed it was assault. Never got access to my rape kit. Don't even know where that is. If you ask A&M after I reported it to them, they have literally no record of my report. There's nothing with my name on it. Nothing that says that I filed a claim, anything. The biggest thing that frustrated the hell out of me with A&M is I was told I could have an advocate in the room when I finally had to face the questioning, the panel, whatever they want to call it that they did at the time with against the assaulter. And so I thought an advocate would be my mom. So I brought my mom and the man who did this to me had a ton of money and showed up with an attorney who then grilled me like I was on the stand at a hearing. It was the worst day of my life. I would say that that was worse than the actual assault because I felt like everything was my fault. One thing a lot of people don't know is I had a Facebook event. It was a Christmas party that we had had and it wasn't a big party. It was like our closest family and friends. Like it wasn't big at all. A guy friend of mine brought his friends and that's who it was who did it to me. And on the Facebook event that I had, and mind you, this is back in the day when like Facebook was the only thing that everyone had. So like everything was on Facebook. I wrote in the about or section information section of the event that I wanted people to stay the night and that I could make a really good palette because I didn't support drinking and driving because that is like very much a no-no in my life. And the attorney used that against me saying I was asking for it by asking people to stay the night and that I was putting it out there that I was open to doing things. So this is like the re-victimization and the shaming that I went through from A&M and from not having an attorney there to represent me. And just so you guys know, there is a program out there and an organization out there that would literally do exactly what you needed them to do just then. And I didn't know it existed. And it's called Texas Advocacy Project. They're the ones that are sponsoring this entire series. And they provide free legal services to anyone in emotional or domestic abuse situations and sexual assault victims. So had I known that they were a, you know, an organization I could have called and had help and guidance, I think my entire assault situation with the police department and the city of College Station and with AM probably would have gotten very different because I had a lot of proof, even though they tried to tell me I didn't. 
But then welcomes 2018 June. And Megan, this is where you really, sorry, here we are like almost an hour in and you get to chime in on and help me kind of share the 12th woman story. So 12th woman basically happened because of a tweet. Social media brought a bunch of us women together. Because I've been talking a lot, Megan, why don't you share a little bit about how we came about? Because I, I would love to hear it from not my perspective. <laughs> okay. So 12th woman started because a girl who was assaulted by a, an athlete on the Texas A&M swim team made a Twitter post. And I don't normally use Twitter. My Twitter is pretty much defunct. But my friends knew that and they shared it to me via a text message. And I read this and it just like hit home to me because I... So basically what she had said is like, thanks Texas A&M for putting my rapist back on the swim team. Right. And I was like, oh, that just hit me right in the feels because I experienced something very similar with a, a member of the football team. I sat with this message for a day or two and I was like, I have to do something. I have to say something. But like what? And so I wrote up this giant Facebook post and I posted it and then I posted screenshots to Twitter and it went kind of viral. And so Abby saw it and she got in touch with me and we made a Facebook page basically because she was like, you know, we have a similar story. There's a third girl, the first girl who posted who has a similar story. All of us are sitting here saying the exact same thing. We got to do something about this. And so we made this Facebook page. Abby made the Facebook page because I didn't know how to make a Facebook page. <laughs> and it just blossomed overnight it just blew up with people who had the same thing happen to them and not always in an athletics arena but people who um just people from all over different areas of the university who experienced mm -hmm. the same kind of silencing and the same kind of being brushed under the rug we all had the same story and so that's that's really where the 12th woman came from was that we were just like damn this happened to all of us we should we should make that stop. <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, it was a group of us that basically all had proof that we had reported it to A&M, but all, all felt like we were not given the rights that we should have been given as a survivor. And they didn't handle it the way that Title IX had said to handle it. And so basically we realized we had a voice and we had numbers, which there's power in numbers in advocacy work. And we've learned that that we began requesting a meeting with the president of A&M. They kept trying to tell us, no, you'll meet with the administrative team. No, no, no. And it took me writing an email to them basically saying, no meeting if there's no president. And lo and behold, there was a meeting with the president and the chancellor of A&M. And side story, and this is the stuff that like media never gets to tell, which is why I want to tell these little details. But we, Megan and, did we, did we ride together? I can't even remember. Did we drive to College Station together? We did. And we get to the hotel that's off campus in Bryan, not even in College Station, where we're hosting this meeting in this hotel's meeting room. And I had been in conversation with the manager because I was explaining to him what we were doing. They gave us a really good rate on a room to stay the night and to prepare and afterwards and talk about what our plans were. I, we go to check in and we're like, oh, we're here for the meeting with A&M's administrative team. And they're like, oh, the marketing meeting? And they literally, A&M called over, reserved a room, and they were so hush-hush about it that they called it the market. It was like a marketing team meeting or whatever because they didn't even want the hotel 
to know that it was meeting with a group of survivors. Do you remember that feeling? Oh, I very much do. Yeah, because it was the manager knew, but it was the staff that didn't. Yeah. And and we were just like, marketing meeting. This is the opposite of marketing. (laughs) Like, Yeah. Yeah. And so at that point, we'd kind of befriended the manager and he kind of knew what the situation was and how A&M was being crappy. We end up having the meeting. Unfortunately, some different things that I, you know, I just want to share because I think it's important that no media would ever share this. But VP of Student Affairs, his name is Dr. Daniel Pugh. He winked at me during this meeting while I'm sharing my detailed story of my rape at A&M. He winks at and multiple women. There was like eight or 10 of us sharing our story. Um, we had people on Skype from all over the world that were sharing and chiming in and sharing their story. One of the girls was literally doing it in the middle of the night. It was like 2 a.m. wherever she was. And throughout this entire process of dealing with A&M, I also want to note that Daniel Pugh offered field football tickets to women in our group and also offered front row seats to Rev Seven's funeral. And Rev Seven is Reveille, for those of you who aren't an Aggie, um, and it's our, our mascot. And she's like the most prestigious thing on campus. And one Rev Seven had died, and he wanted to offer tickets to or like seats to us to the funeral. I think she's the highest ranking member of the Corp Cadets. Highest ranking member. Thank you. Thank you for making me not sound like a bad Aggie. (laughs) (laughs) And what's funny is I reported that he was doing these things, which guys, by the way, that's grooming. That's what grooming is. Is like, oh, I'm going to make you feel loved and supported, and then I'm going to like turn around and you know treat you really crappy. And um, I reported these all to the provost, Carol Fiarchi. And in a very, very one-on-one, woman-to-woman conversation, she basically looked at me and said, Abby, you know my hands are tied and I'm dealing with a world that's basically all men and I'm fighting an uphill battle, which was basically her way of telling me like we had no voice and we weren't going to change the administration going on um, at A&M. And I think for me, that that was the day where I wanted to quit because I felt like no matter what. And by the way, just up and before Megan, I don't know if you've looked at this, but just before starting this podcast today, I went and looked at the A&M administrative team and there are 23 members and four are women. So less, less than 17% of Michael Young's team as the president of A&M and College Station, only four out of 23 are women. And that's still an issue. Carol Fiarchi is one of those three. And let me just tell you, the other three... They're no, they're, we won't go there. That's an opinion I'm not going to share. Long story short, it was a really long 2018 summer. We did a lot of advocating and meeting at A&M. We were asked to join their team that was rewriting the policies for Title IX and how they were going to handle assaults and the reporting and all of that jazz and creating a system on where there's an obvious information online on their website. What are they, you know, educating students on? Are they being outspoken about this stuff? So that way students feel more like they know exactly what they need to do and how to report. And then once they do report, the process is actually being the correct way and not re-victimizing survivors and that type of thing. And that was a grueling experience. We were silenced a lot of time in those meetings where each of us individually would sit in at this conversation with all these administrators and they did it to shut us up. They had us included in those meetings to shut us up. But I think the best part that came out of 12th Woman was being able to be endorsed by Congressman Ted Poe. I don't know about you, Megan, but that's like one of my favorite memories because I finally felt like I was being heard. I guess, I guess for you, that trip was a lot harder for you than it was for me. But for me, I mean, it was an emotional trip. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, 
but also getting that plaque in the mail from him about like the stuff nationally that we had worked on, I thought was really, really cool and thought, okay, we're finally making momentum in this world and people are finally listening to survivors. Would you agree with that? No, absolutely. I, I, I think that that was a really cool culmination of what we did and it, I, it did make a difference. I was personally struggling. <laughs> I, I was in the hospital a week later yeah. with panic attack. So I was just like, I was personally in a really bad place. So I wouldn't say that that was one of my favorite memories. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I do think that the result of that and going and doing that was, was really, really cool. Honestly, my favorite memory of 2018 summer is getting to meet you and the fact that we became friends. So. I know. It's really cool. And now, like, I don't know, our worlds just keep coming together. But I, I, want, I want people to know, because I don't think everyone understands what we did in D.C., because I think they saw pictures on social media but don't really know. So a girl I actually... This is the full circle of life, guys. My friend I did gymnastics with back at Capitol contacts me and reaches out to me out of the blue and is like, hey, I've been following what you're doing all summer. I want to talk. And I'm like, what? At this point, I had no idea what she was even doing. I had to go like search her on Facebook. I'm like, what is this girl doing? Come to find out she is the communications director for Congressman Ted Poe and arranged for us to show up in DC and share our stories on the floor of Congress, which is just, it was an incredible experience. It also was very hard to watch a group of political men hear your story and the details of your rape and assault and tell it and tell it to do the speaking. We just got to help with the writing. Yeah. Just, and it was a little, a little weird. It was very, it was very weird. But afterwards we held a um, press conference in front of the white house and you know, there was this whole thing that I don't even think people understand. Like when you're talking about MSU and A&M and USA Gymnastics and the USOC, there are so many politics that go into all of these governmental entities. It's not even funny. Um, For those of you who don't know, there are more Aggies on Capitol Hill than there are of any other university in the United States. So as you can imagine, A&M is a very, 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 very political school that has a lot of political pull. And Megan and a lot of the other girls from 12th Woman, we all compiled our resources and we got our butts up to DC to make this happen on a very two week short notice. Yeah, I was just going to say we had about a week's notice to get flights, get hotels, get everybody down to DC. Like it was very, very fast. And so it was not cheap. Yeah. And so we get there and it's, we had took a 6am flight out of Dallas and we get there, or at least I did. And we get there and Katrina pulls me over and she's like, Hey, it's might not happen. Y'all might not be telling your story. And I'm like, what? How? Like, Katrina, we just spent thousands of dollars getting all of us here to make this all happen. And you're just like going to just all of a sudden say like this trip was wasted. You can't do this. So I basically told her she can't do this. She need to figure out another way that was going to happen. Basically what we realized and what came out of it was that A&M was threatening votes on something else that I guess Ted needed po- votes on. And he needed them so badly on something else that they, if he went and did this, then they weren't going to give it to him or something along those lines. Basically, I think Katrina negotiated votes on something else and somehow made it happen. But it was pushed like three hours later than it normally would have been. And it was this whole big deal and conversation of politics. And I don't even want to know what her conversations were because it would probably make me throw up. But the coolest thing about it all is... um, Ted Poe presented the 12th woman bill to Congress at the end of all of that. And we can at least say that 
at a national level, we tried to make changes. And I think that's ultimately really cool, despite the nastiness that AM brought. And people wonder, like, I think for me, like, you're still such a strong Aggie. And like, for me, I don't wear my Aggie ring anymore. My diploma doesn't hang in my house anymore. Like, I have a huge struggle with the university because of the administration. And I think a lot of people struggle with why I don't love the school anymore. And, you know, they're like, they're just, Aggies are such diehard Aggies that they just don't get it. They just don't get it. And I've gotten a lot of shame from other Aggies. Like you're just running their name through mud. You are just, you know, attention seeking. You're a whistleblower, blah, blah, blah. But people don't realize how bad it is. It's really bad. No, I got that too. And especially online, the hate was really, really intense, especially that summer. I haven't gone to a football game since, which is like tough. Mm -hmm. I mean, my family has season tickets and a giant football tailgate trailer. And they just like... I think the reason I'm still so like, like I, I won't give up my Aggie ring because like, Oh, I'm going to get emotional, which is so stupid. You did. Like it's like part of who I am. Yeah. It was like, you know, like four generations back, everybody has an Aggie ring and like, <laughs> this is really, really dumb. You're good. It's not dumb. It's not dumb. It was just like, I think that was the hardest part of the whole thing was that like, like when I went through what I went through, I was like working for the university. I was a tutor Mm -hmm. and like, this was like the the epitome of what I'd always wanted. And I was like really excited. I love my students and like, it was a job that I really liked. I didn't get paid shit, but like, (laughs) (laughs) I just, I really enjoyed it. I was teaching Mm -hmm. like, and, and then to have the university just like, completely dispose of me the moment that something bad happened and I started I reported the something bad that happened like the moment I reported something unpleasant they were just like oh you're useless but this athlete who did it to you is not useless (laughs) right like like he matters more than you do exactly yeah and and speaking of that you guys I'm something I didn't even write as a note that we were going to talk about but Megan and I were asked to do an article for Texas Monthly to, to just further illustrate how deep A&M goes. Our article was supposed to be printed in the actual magazine and also released on the internet. We, they came to my house twice, the first time to get the story, the second time to take pictures of Megan and I. It was this big, huge deal. It was going to be this big, huge production. And then all of a sudden, it was nothing. And it got pushed. And it got pushed. And it got pushed. And it went from airing in August to September to October to November. And I finally called him out so bad to the point where I basically accused him of accepting money from A&M, which was a total lie. And I, I, I shouldn't have done that. But it got the chief editor of Texas Monthly to call me and basically tell me that I needed to shut up because that's not a valid concern. But then they go on to print an article all about the new football coach instead of printing our article because A&M could only have one article in the Texas Monthly magazine. And instead, they released our article online digitally only on election day in November. It means it got no coverage mm-hmm. and no traction. And it was an incredible article. I will give the, the reporters who did the article, they actually did a really great job and they covered a lot more than most any other ed- uh, writers did, but it got no coverage. They didn't care about our story. Yeah, like those reporters were the best reporters we've worked with. They were. Hands down. They went to the the student affairs office with me at A&M to like, because for a while they wouldn't like 
Texas State, I don't know if they do this anymore, but they wouldn't give me a copy of my file. Yes. And, and they were very, very adamant about the fact that they wouldn't release copies of files. And so they were like, the reporters were like, okay, well, we'll just go and we'll go sit in there and we will handwrite every, like, we will handwrite every single document in that folder. And that's what we went in to do. And as we were doing this, they like took my file back and they were like, you can't do that. And they were like, we were like, well, you can take notes. And they were like, no, you can't do that. And we were like, okay, well, you won't give us copies. You won't let us take notes. Like, what the hell? And they were like, we need to go talk to general counsel. And so they left us. They left us sitting there for like an hour. And then they came back with a copy of the file and handed it to me. Because I guess their, co- their lawyers were like, you have to give them copies. But like their office protocol was not to give out copies of things. And so right. I had to bring journalists with me to get a copy of my file, which is dumb. But those journalists were willing to do it, which is mm-hmm. it's really great. Drive to College Station and do that. Yeah. So that's something that we've learned that unfortunately, like the two biggest things that I've learned in advocacy um, to fight for the things that need to be fixed in this world and to change society's norms is that there are power in numbers of speaking out with a face to a name. Um, A lot of survivors don't want to speak out because it's scary and it's also like emotionally gut-wrenching sometimes. Um, But the other thing, unfortunately, as nasty as it is, is media brings a lot of strength to your movement. And so one thing that Megan and I were able to lead by example was being able to just put a ton of pressure on A&M with the media. And I think ultimately we made some changes. A lot of people would probably tell us we made a hell of a lot of changes. I still feel like there's a lot to be done. So I struggle with feeling like we accomplished something. But I will say, and I told them I would do this, but Texas Advocacy Project, was I was introduced to them from Megan, which thank you, I'm forever indebted to you for that because it was like one of the coolest introductions ever. But for the first time I sat at a table with um, employees of that organization and they made you and I feel like we had done something and that we had a place and a, and a voice and that they just idolized us for what we had done. And that had never happened before. We just, I always just felt used and abused and I don't know, it just wasn't, it wasn't, I never, it never came from a loving, like we just appreciate what you've done. And people at the Texas advocacy project has like totally just made me feel like I have a voice and I have a place to talk about all this stuff, which is, I'm so very thankful for them. I have gotten more quiet support from other females in the legal profession than I ever expected out of this. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. And I, you know, I think there's a lot that happened that's happened in the last couple years in regards to like the hashtag me too movement and everything that we've been a part of. And so many other survivors have been a part of. And I think the biggest thing that I just want people to know is that this is still happening and it's still a fight that has not been won and it won't be won for a really long time. I don't know if it'll ever be won. You know, I, I got a call. I still get calls, right? And I got a call from a mom who was trying to advocate for her daughter at A&M who had um, basically flunked her classes at May's Business School and was they were withholding her transcript and weren't letting her have her grades or get incompletes and were basically backing her into a corner. And that situation really upset me because she had been assaulted and she had not reported it to A&M. So they went to the dean and the dean said, unless you report it, I can't help you, which is not. (laughs) So basically she had to go forward and do something she didn't want to do just because 
that's what he wanted and needed. And it was crazy because one quick call to Carol Fiarchi, the provost, where I explained to her the situation and ex- expressed to her what the dean was doing. And all of a sudden that, that student was taken care of, which is really weird. But that's just like what's still going on. I and mean, this is after all of the stuff had been completed that we had done for the 12th woman. And it's what's still happening. Um, it's happening at UTSA. I've gotten a call and talked to a survivor from there. The Title IX offices are still struggling at universities and they still don't have it all figured out. And they're still going to try to protect, you know, their their athletes and their brand is a huge part of what they're protecting, whether that's a university or an organization like USA Gymnastics, who is a very, 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 very wealthy nonprofit that has now lost all sponsorships and is just really struggling because they they valued the brand over the athletes who are making the money. And at some point, it's got to stop. And at some point, we have to demand better. Yeah. So I think ultimately, my view is, is we can't fix societal problems if we don't speak out. I just hope that by Megan and I coming on here and always sharing our story, that we can act as a group because a group voice has power. That's the way that we're going to create change. So I just really encourage anyone who does have a story Big or small, it doesn't matter. Speak out. T- tell your story. I promise you, you'll get more positive feedback than negative feedback, and you'll get a lot more love. And I've even put together on my lovingthislife.org website, I've put together a place if you want to share your story, you can go on there and you can either anonymously share your story or you can attach it to your name and they're confidential, but it can give you a place to feel like you're sharing your story. And you can always reach out to me or Megan socially. Uh, We're both on Instagram and I'll include how you can contact her in the show notes. But Megan, do you have anything else you want to say? No, I'm not really. I'm just, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be here and to tell my story too. You know, I think that there's power in speaking out and, and there's power in speaking out and owning your own story, right? And owning who you are and all of the little bits of you. And that's what you're giving people an opportunity to do here. And I like that. Thanks for helping me and always supporting me and my crazy endeavors. <laughs> <laughs> we have crazy endeavors together. It's fun. This is true. And it's not stopping anytime soon. <laughs> Absolutely not. All right, guys. Well, uh, Megan, thank you for coming on and, and hosting me and doing this with me because I just the thought of doing this by myself was really hard. So I appreciate you doing this and anytime, anytime. That's a wrap for uh, the first episode of the series for advocating for athletes guys. And next up is Adam Miller. He is a coach here out of Austin, Texas, and he's got some great insight um, about the sport of gymnastics that he's sharing. So stay tuned um, because that's another great episode. Thank you guys so much for listening and I will talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Loving This Life podcast special series called Advocating for Athletes. It is because of people like you tuning in each episode that Loving This Life has a purpose. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. This is how we spread the love and reach more amazing people like yourself. I want to give a special thank you to Ella Reed. What most people don't know is that the song that plays at the beginning and the end of the podcast was written by Ella for sexual assault survivors. She so graciously shared her empowering and uplifting song, Walk On, for us to use on the podcast, and I am forever thankful our paths crossed. This series includes tough conversations, but my hope is that by having these tough conversations, society continues to change for the better. 
So remember, you are not defined by what happens to you, but you are defined by how you respond. You are worthy, you are enough, and you have the ability to change the world. Thanks again for listening. Peace, y'all.